Um, y'all, about probably about five or six years ago, I heard I heard Pastor Andy Stanley give a sermon on the scripture that we're going to focus on today, and I think I may have mentioned him maybe the first or second week that I was with, that I was with you, but um, not that this really matters. Just let me tell you who this guy is. Andy is a uh, is a church pastor at North North Point Community Church up a little bit north of Atlanta, huge church. Um, but he just gives some really excellent messages. He gives some really excellent preachings and teachings on Scripture. As far as I'm concerned, um, he's really one of the best evangelical preachers and teachers out there, and I, just, I really like him a lot. Uh, if you're older, like I am, you may remember Andy's father. His name was Dr. Charles Stanley, or is Dr. Charles Stanley. He's, he's very, very old right now. Um, but he used to be the pastor at First Baptist in Atlanta. And he also would led, uh, y'all may recall, this magazine called In Touch Ministries, and he had a television show and all that. Anyway, Andy's, Andy is his son, and, 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 and I pick up a lot, of my, a lot of my own understanding of Scripture, my, and I'll be honest with you, I also kind of pick some of the stuff out of Andy's sermons a lot of times, just because I think he just does such an excellent job um, transcribing um, Scripture from an orthodox or theologically conservative point of view and explaining that to people. And this was one of those sermons. And again, it just it really, really hit home with me the first time that I heard it, which was about five or six years ago. And, he, uh, and it's a message that I had never heard before. And it's a message that you don't hear a lot. As a matter of fact, I don't even know that I had ever, ever, ever heard this message in church. And I, think, I hope that you guys get as much out of it now, today, this morning, as I did back then and, and as I still do. Today, every time I go back and reread this scripture and study the scripture again, this has kind of become part of my sermon repertoire, if you will. I love, love preaching this sermon for a variety of reasons. And we're just going to start off by looking at one verse. We're going to go over a lot of verses, but we're going to focus on one. This is, this is it. This is our primary focus for this morning is this one little verse. And I'm going to give it to you. You can see it right there in your bulletin if you want to. And we'll have it up here on the screen in just a minute. And then I'm going to give you some background. We're going to go back and we're going to figure out what's going on here and what led up to the Apostle Paul writing these words, which are probably a little bit maybe scary to us. I don't know. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul writes these words. He says, What business is it of mine to judge those or to judge people who are outside of the church. And here it is. Are you not to judge those inside the church? That's the word of God to the people of God. Would y'all agree with me that this one little piece of scripture packs a pretty powerful punch? It does. It forces us to look at ourselves. It forces us to look at how we deal with people, particularly how we deal with the sins of other people. More specifically, it teaches us and it forces us to look at ourselves and how we deal with the sins of people who are non-Christians, who are non-believers, who are those outside the church, as the scripture said, versus those who are inside the church. It probably stung us, stung us a little bit, some of us. I'm sure it raises a number of questions for us. Well, primarily, I think probably a big question maybe some of you guys are asking yourselves right now is, well, what about Jesus? Didn't Jesus say, do not judge others? Well, yes and no. And we'll get to Christ in a little bit. 
and we'll discover what he has to say about the subject. But let's be honest first and foremost before we jump into this. All of us judge people. All of us judge the sins of other people. If we are Christians, certainly we judge the sins of other people. If we're going to be honest with ourselves and with each other, to some degree or another. Despite what we might think, despite what we may have been taught, however, Paul says it is not only okay to judge the sins of other people, certain people, but that we should judge the sins of certain people, namely those who are inside the church. He explicitly, explicitly also says, guess what? It's not any of your business to judge people, the sins of people who are non-believers. It is not your business to judge the sins of people who are not Christ's followers, who do not claim Christ as Savior and Lord. Those outside the church. However, it is very much our business to judge and to hold accountable the sins of those within the church. A lot of times what happens is we get this way, way wrong. Honestly, a lot of times what happens is we get this absolutely backwards and we that's how we practice it in our lives. One of the problems that I think we have in the church today and have had for some time, and this doesn't apply to everybody, and this is a generalized statement, and I understand this, but one of the problems that we have in the church and one of the problems that people outside of the church have with Christians, with us, is that we have, in many, many, many occasions, we have become notorious for policing the sins of people outside the church while not holding ourselves very accountable. Let me repeat that to you one time, and I, and I hope that stings some of us like it still stings me. We have become notorious many, many times for trying to police the sins of people who are non-Christians while at the same time not holding ourselves and one another very accountable. And that is the opposite. That is the exact opposite of what Paul writes in this scripture, and it's the exact opposite of the entire narrative that we're going to go over today. Just so there's no misunderstanding here. Just so you say, well, that's what, the, that's what the New International Version says. That's how they translate that. Just so there's no confusion, so there's no doubt, let me read to you several other different Bible translations, just so we're all on the same page, so we know that you know, the NIV isn't just making something up or, uh, or translating this poorly. Here's what the New Living Translation writes. It says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. The New Revised Standard Version puts it this way, for what have I to do with judging those outside? Is it not those who are inside who we are to judge? The English Standard Version translates it this way, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church with whom we are to judge? Lastly, the message translation, I'm not responsible. I am not responsible for what outsiders do. But don't we have some responsibility for those within our community of believers? So there should be no confusion here. And this is our starting point. There should be absolutely no confusion here. It's not our business. We have no right. We have no directive. We have no, no command, no admonishment to judge, to discern the sins of people who do not claim to be Christians. None. There is no directive whatsoever from Scripture that says exactly the opposite. It says that we are to judge the sins of people outside the church. But we certainly, we certainly have a directive, and we certainly have an admonishment to hold ourselves accountable, to hold one another accountable to God and to each other. 
Now, what I want to do with that base understanding is I want to give you guys an idea. I want you guys to understand where the Apostle Paul is coming from when he writes 1 Corinthians 5.12. I want you guys to get the background story here because it's, again, a, a very, very powerful story, and I think you guys will understand it more if we actually go over this entire thing. I will say this, I don't see any right now, but if you get any kids out there who decided not to go to a children's church, might now might be the right time to send them. This is one of them Bible stories, okay? This is one they probably ain't going to be taught in, in, in little baby Sunday school. But it starts at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and if you've got a Bible app on your phone or if you want to follow along in one of your pew Bibles, I really encourage you to do that um, so that we all have a very, very good understanding. I think reading this together... Uh, will help us again to, to ingest it better and to better understand and apply where Paul is coming from and how we got to the point where he's telling these people and where he's telling us, don't judge the sins of people outside the church, judge the sins of those inside. And it starts right there in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. And I'm just going to, not exactly verse by verse, but I'll, I'll tell you what we're covering. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes... It is actually reported that there is a sexual that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. Let's stop right there. There is some form of sexual immorality going on inside this church at Corinth. Some form of which the pagans don't even tolerate. People outside of the church are looking at this church in Corinth and they're saying, "Oh my god, I cannot believe you guys are doing that." I cannot look at those Christians. Can you believe what's going on in their church? It was that bad. And this is coming from Corinth, by the way. Corinth was like the Las Vegas of the ancient world, okay? What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. That was, that was just the culture of the day, all right? Um, it, was, it, was, it was notorious for being a, 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 a sinful community, heavily involved, in, especially in sexual sin. So these guys out, these people outside the church are looking at what's going on inside the church, and they're saying, man, I can't believe can't believe those Christians are doing that. That's ew. So what were they doing? Or what specifically was going on? Continue to read about it. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. First of all, ew. Y'all can laugh. Secondly, it's probably not his mother. Most people agree that this is probably... A, a person that this, this guy's father had married subsequent to his mom, so it was probably his stepmother, but nonetheless, he was still sleeping with her. And everybody knew it. Everybody knew that this was going on. It wasn't, it wasn't a secret. It wasn't a secret to the community. Not only that, here's the real kicker in verse 2, and you are proud. Remember, this letter is being written to the entire church, not to just this man guy in your church is sleeping with his mother's with his father's wife and you guys are proud about it you're bragging about it shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put that person out from your fellowship the man who has been doing this again they just weren't they weren't just allowing this to occur in their church they were happy about it they were proud about it here's another interesting thing about that ancient culture especially in Corinth um, it was not uncommon for for men particularly to engage in, in hiring prostitutes. As a matter of fact, it was a socially acceptable thing for men, even married men, to hire prostitutes, to sleep with prostitutes. 
So there's an example of that culture that was influencing the church, okay? So these men were hiring prostitutes, and these men were sleeping around doing whatever they were doing. Specifically, this guy was having sex with his, with his uh, stepmother, and it was accepted, and they were proud about it, but they knew better. They knew better because they'd been told better. They'd been taught better. And Paul says this, shouldn't you kick that guy out of your fellowship? Excommunicate him. That's, that's, that's the word that, we, that we're aware of today. Paul advises them to kick this guy out. Get rid of him. Kick him out of your church. Now, let's jump a little bit forward and look at verses uh, 9 through 11. And just keep in mind, now here's where, the, here's where the judging those inside the church and not judging those outside the church comes into play. Paul writes this in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. <clears throat> in our Bibles, we have 1 Corinthians and, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. There, Paul wrote other letters to the church of Corinth, and we don't have those. Those, for whatever reason, did not wind up in, their, in our Bibles. But this is, this is one of those letters that he is referring to. So he, when he writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, that's coming from a letter that we don't have access to, but we know that it existed at some point. So at some point or another, Paul wrote these words. He said, don't associate with sexually immoral people. Now here it is. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. In other words, when he wrote the words, don't associate with sexually immoral people, I wasn't talking about people inside of our church. That's not who I was referring to. I was referring to those inside of our church. If we avoided all sexually immoral people, all the greedy, all the swindlers, all the idolaters that we come into on a daily basis, we wouldn't be able to, be, to exist in this world. That's not who I was talking about when I wrote those words. And he continues this. He says, in that case, again, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister. There it is. You must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slander, a drunkard, a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. Those are some pretty strong words. I think Paul wanted them to get the point. Those are exceptionally strong words from the Apostle Paul. Following verse 12, he writes this. He says, God will judge those outside the church expel the wicked person from among you. God will judge those. Don't, you don't judge the people outside the church. God will do that. Expel the evil person from among you. When he says expel the evil person from among you, um, Paul is referencing a number of verses in Deuteronomy that refer to purging the evil from among you. Now here's the thing. I'm not advocating that we just start tossing people out left and right because of their sin. In that case, we wouldn't have, we'd have a lot of empty pews. And I don't think that Paul was advocating that at all either. What we see in these scriptures, however, very specifically, was a very, very heinous sin, a very, very obvious sin, and an unrepentant, unremorseful person and community, for that matter, who was engaging in this sin. Very heinous, very obvious Another thing that I want us to point out 
and make sure that we understand is that accountability, and this is what it all comes back to, accountability is not about harshness. It's not about meanness. Despite what our passages may seem to look like on the surface or may, despite what they may seem to imply on the surface, go backwards and read what Paul writes in verses 3 through 5 talking about this man and talking about this situation. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment. I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ on the one who has been doing these things. So when you are assembled, I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now here it is. So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Hand this man over to Satan. Hand this man over to his desires. Hand this man over to whatever he's doing. Why? So that he may be saved. Here's the thing. Sometimes we've got to let people go. Sometimes we have to let people go for their own good. Y'all, you know, maybe a modern term for that might be tough love. But we do these things for the sake of love. And that's what we've talked about for a number of weeks now. We talked about compassion big time. That is our motivation when addressing the sin of other people, by the way. We'll talk about that more in a second. But if our motivation for judging the sin of other people within our community is anything but love and compassion for them, we got the wrong motivation. And we need to check ourselves first. What they were hoping for, what reason Paul writes these words, he says, so that he can, what was it again? So that he can, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Let him go. We can't force, we can't coerce people into not sinning. We can't do that. Sometimes we've got to let people go. We've got to let God deal with them. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully God will deal with them enough that they'll start seeing how bad they're hurting themselves, how bad they're hurting people around them, how bad they're hurting the church. And they will repent, and they will turn around. Interestingly enough, if you were, if you were to look forward in your Bible into 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, I think it is. Chapter 2. That's exactly what happens with this guy. And, that's, and, and, the, and the church follows the directives of Paul. Evidently, they, 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 they get rid of him. They, they get rid of him. They expel him from the community. And what happens is obviously God deals with him after that. And he does become repentant. And he does turn away. And he is welcomed back into the fellowship of the church. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8. Now that he has done this, now that this has happened, now that he is, this person has admitted, that there's, admitted their sin, confessed their sin, repented, this is how you handle it. And this is where the love comes in. Forgive him. This is what you guys do, community. Forgive him and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So that's what this is all about, holding one another accountable, holding ourselves accountable to the church, to one another, to the, to the global community of Christ. It's not about harshness. It's not about meanness. It is about love. It's always, always, always about love. It's, it is always, always, always our motivation. We get this wrong so very often so so very often 
love for God, love for the church, love for the person or people who were involved in unrepentant sin, those who were caught up in this stuff. When we hold one another accountable, again, it's not about meanness. It's redemptive. It's redemptive and it's restorative. Why? Because sin hurts people. And that's our motivator once again. Sin hurts people. I don't judge the sins of somebody else because I think I'm better than them. Our judgment, our motivator for recognizing and for confronting, if we have to, the sins of other people is, hey, you're hurting yourself. You're hurting yourself. Not only are you hurting God, not only are you hurting people around you, but you're causing pain and suffering to yourself by continuing in this. And I don't want to see you suffer anymore. God doesn't want to see you suffer. All the, all, oftentimes we get this so very, very wrong in the church. We, we ignore problems. We ignore excessive, unrepentant sin in our churches. We let this stuff fester, and we, and we, and we stand idly by. We stand idly by, and we watch people struggle as their sin gets worse and worse and worse, and they continue to suffer because of it, as hard as it may be. As hard as it may be, one of the most difficult things that we can do for one another is to have hard conversations every now and then, to hold one another accountable for the good of the church and for the good of the individual. We had um, a shudder to tell this story. I hope I didn't, hope I didn't write on myself just then. Um, Sandy and I were part of a church a number of years ago <clears throat> and there was a minister there um, that I didn't think acted appropriately in a lot of ways that my wife didn't think acted appropriately in a lot of ways he, certain, he, he would say certain things that I thought were very, very inappropriate he would, he would behave in a way that I thought was very inappropriate especially, in, especially around women and uh and he would just, everything wasn't sexual, but there, there was a lot of other, 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 other things behind that. I just didn't think that his behavior and the way that he handled himself in a lot of ways reflected that of somebody who was called to the ministry. Not that we're all perfect. I ain't perfect either. But I think that I thought at the same time that some of this stuff was so obvious and so glaringly obvious that it needed to be addressed by the senior pastoral leadership. And it never was. And we weren't the only ones. I actually talked to some of the, the senior leaders there at the time and and they, they avoided it. They avoided the behavior of this minister. And, um, and I knew that other people had talked to the senior leadership about this individual. I think this went on for years. And it was just avoided and avoided and avoided and avoided. We eventually left that church, um, that, being for, that being one of the reasons. And lo and behold, two years later, two, three years later, this guy, they avoided it all the way until the point they could not avoid it any longer. This minister got caught up in some egregious sexual sin. Absolutely egregious that was, that, that, that was occurring. I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure if I remember right, there was some drug use involved as well. But he was just doing some awful things, some things you guys wouldn't, wouldn't believe. But that's what we do a lot of times in churches is we avoid these problems till they fester, till they fester, until they, until they explode it can't be avoided anymore in an effort to protect our, our reputation. What about that person, though? Was he, was that person not harming, not only the church, not only the people around himself, was he not only harming himself? Sure he was harming himself. What if somebody had had the heart, 
the compassion two years prior to that to pull this guy to the side and said, hey, let's talk about this. Maybe, just maybe, it never would have gotten to that point. I wonder. I doubt that it would. I doubt that it would, but we were more worried about protecting our reputation. We were more worried about having those uncomfortable conversations. We were more worried about confronting somebody and potentially literally saving their lives. And that's where we misstep. We have to do this. We have to have these difficult conversations sometimes. We do have a calling for accountability. Remember what I told you two or three weeks ago. Christianity is not a solitary religion. John Wesley said that the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. It's about us as a community. So we talked about Paul. Paul clearly has an opinion on this. Paul pretty, pretty direct about all this. What does Jesus have to say about it? Do the words of Paul here in 1 Corinthians conflict with the words of Jesus? Because didn't Jesus say, judge not, lest you be judged? That's what we're told all the time. That's the, that's the verses that we remember. Judge not, lest you be judged. Well, let's look at that scripture. You'll find it in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It's right in the middle or right towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7. Did I say Matthew 7? Yeah, Matthew 7, verse 1. I'm going to read that entire scripture for you. Matthew 7, verse 1. Here it goes. This is the words of Christ. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. And that's where folks generally stop. A lot of times you hear the scripture quoted, people talking about Jesus and what he said about judgment and judging others. That's generally where folks stop at. Do not judge, lest you be judged, period. Nothing else. But that's not how Jesus states it, and that's not where he stops. Christ says, don't judge or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank over your own? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and what? Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus never tells us don't judge, folks. He does tell us to practice the discipline of self-evaluation like we talked about last week. He never says don't judge. He never says that. He says check yourself, make sure your motives are right so that you can talk about the speck in your brother or sister's eye. It's not an indictment. Jesus' words are not an indictment against discerning sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters. It's not an indictment against judging, and it's, it's not an indictment against uh, accountability. Jesus' words are an indictment against self-righteousness. <laughs> They're an indictment against self-righteous judgment, that kind of sin, that's, that kind of judgment that tells me, that I'm better than somebody, that kind of judgment that tells me I'm more worth, I, I, I carry more worth or more value than another person, that kind of judgment that says, well, I may sin like this, but at least I don't sin like this, like this guy or this lady. That's the kind of judgment he's talking about. That's where the indictment is. Check yourself first, 
and make sure that your motives are correct. Proper judgment, proper discernment, proper accountability is not, <laughs> is not about self-righteous judgment. Check yourself. Check yourself. It comes from a mindset that says I'm better than somebody else. That's where self-righteous judgment point comes in. And Christ talks about it in numerous places throughout the Gospels. Numerous places throughout the Gospels. As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a, there's a, few, there's a great story. In it. I can't remember exactly where it is in one of the Gospels where there's, where there's basically two guys <coughs> praying together in the temple. And, and uh, this guy, there's one guy over here, and he's, he's obviously just, just really distraught. He's, he's, the tears are flowing, and he's repentant and everything. But one of the reasons for that is because he's been doing some pretty, again, egregious, awful sins. And this guy over here, instead of, instead of praying a prayer of repentance or whatever, he looks at God and he says, God, I just want to thank you that I'm not like this guy over here. All right? That's the kind of self-righteous judgment that we're talking about. That's the indictment that Christ is laying down. In order to be a church, in order to be a healthy church, we have to be an accountable church. And I think this is something that, is, that, is, that we have missed we have dropped the ball on in so so many ways. I'm just talking about being. I'm just talking about the church in general. In order to be a healthy church, we have to be a church that is willing and wanting to be accountable to one another. We have to have this desire. We have to have this desire to really be honest with each other and to realize, yeah, we are accountable to each other. I'm accountable to Donnie. I'm accountable to my wife. I'm accountable to Tom, to Rudy, to all of you. If y'all ever catch me doing something or acting in a way that I shouldn't act, y'all don't think I should. I want you to tell me. Because I am accountable to you, but I'm not. But it's not just the pastor; it's every person in this room. Because I know. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about accountability. And it may. I may not like it. I may not like what you have to say in the beginning. But I've got enough experience in this field. I've got enough experience in this practice that I know that when somebody calls me out, and I stop and I think about it, and I say, "Yeah, that person's right," and I repent and I turn around, there's always spiritual growth on the other side of that. Always, always, always. There's always spiritual growth on the other side of that. So, yeah, if y'all ever see me acting in an inappropriate way, tell me. Saying something, behaving something, tell me. I want to know. And I think that I don't think we should. All of us should have that willingness. Not the willingness, a desire. We should want that for one another. Because the more that we do that, the more we are going to look like Christ as a community. That's just the way that it works. Along those same lines, we gotta have we gotta be able, we gotta be willing to have these difficult conversations sometimes, and they are difficult conversations. We gotta be willing to do that, especially when our brothers and sisters are caught up in these patterns of sin for their benefit. For their benefit. Not out of self-righteous judgment, but for their benefit, for the benefit of the church. So what do we do with outsiders? <laughs> what do we do with outsiders? We simply love them, y'all. We've talked about that for a number of weeks. We talked about real compassion last week. We continue to have real compassion on those who are outside the church. We don't get to pass judgment on them. Sorry, we don't. We don't get to pass judgment on people who are non-believers. We love them. We show them the compassion of Christ in all circumstances. That's how we bring people into the church, by the way. Through the compassion of Christ. I can't think of one example in the Gospels where Jesus brings him, people into a relationship with him through nastiness and harsh judgment every example that I can think of Christ shows people love first and then he invites them into that relationship with them and then through that love 
through that relationship, we allow Christ to grow people. We don't expect that people are going to change overnight. I certainly didn't change overnight. But we work with folks, and we allow God to do the work in their hearts. So we continue to show love and grace. We allow God, we allow the Holy Spirit to shape and mold people. When they do come into the church, when they do become a part of that community, then we, of course, we introduce them to the ideas of accountability, too. <clears throat> Again, I can't stress enough that accountability is a good thing. I know it sounds bad. I know that, I know, I know that it sounds, you know, this is something I, ugh, this is something we as people want to avoid, but it's not a bad thing. It's actually a very, very, very beautiful thing, and I've told you guys this before. That's how the Methodist church grew like from crazy by crazy leaps and bounds the way that it grew in the early days was because they had real accountability and they had really expectations here's something else I'll tell you we've really seriously lowered the expectations of church membership over the years you come up here you say you want to join the church people join the church and they just kind of pick we just kind of pick and choose what we want to do back then there were expectations for church membership and there was also accountability and that's how they grew. That's how they grew numerically. That's how they grew in their relationships with each other. That's how they grew um, in, in, in conformity to Christ. It was a willingness and a desire to say, hey, Donnie, tell me what I'm doing wrong. Okay? Donnie, here's the sins that I'm struggling with this right now. I want you to know that. When's the last time we confessed our sins to somebody else? Or the sins that we struggle with. What happens when that's, again, not out of meanness? What happens on the other side of that transformation? Every time we confess, every time we repent, every time we turn the other way, we grow closer. Gracious God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the words of Paul. Thank you for the example of the, the uh, church in Corinth. God, this is a hard, hard and difficult thing for us to uh, talk about. It's a hard and difficult thing, certainly, for us to practice. But we know that this is how churches grow. We know that this is how the body of Christ grows. We ask God, I ask personally that you would give me the willingness, that you would give me the desire uh, to be accountable to our congregation, to be accountable to uh, the worldwide fellowship of, of, of uh, believers. And I pray the same thing for Bemis, Lord, that you would give us hearts to follow you in this area and also through all things so that we might reflect your kingdom for the good of our community and every life that we touch. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.